Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. I'm stoked to uh, have my guest on today. It's uh, Paul Douglas Moonjean, and I was uh, talking to him before we got on. I was trying to figure out how I found him, and I we figured out it's through um, John Poveromo's show, Dystopia Tonight. But for some reason, I went down this rabbit hole watching his dry bar special and watching all the videos that he has online, and I decided I want to talk to him, and he's got... He, he, he's got a lot of insight into comedy that he brings on the stage in a subtle way. And I just really, I, I really want to get into that. So I'm going to bring him up right now. It's Paul Douglas Moomjean. Hi, Paul. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm doing well. I mean, two o'clock on a Thursday, like, yeah, this is like, weird. you know, it's like the, the part of the day where it's kind of like if nothing ever happened for the rest of the day, it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know how like, you feel. It's not like Monday where you're like, oh, we have to get all this stuff done by Friday. Yeah. By two o'clock Thursday, you know how your week went. That's right. That's right. You know how it went and you can't yeah. save it. So you might as well just coast for the rest of the two days. Yeah. I take my wins, my losses, and then go, hey, we'll start again on Monday. Yeah. So I, in my stalking of you, I've uh, noticed uh, a cigar in your mouth quite a few times. I'm a cigar smoker myself, and right after this, my son's coming over to have a smoke with me. So, um, are, are do you do you still smoke cigars, or was that something that you did and you don't do any longer? So last year in July, I had massive heart failure. Yeah, and I've lost a bunch of weight since then, and I've had to change dietary and social habits uh -huh. so cigars now since july of last year i've had maybe three okay and that's but but i was having three a night yeah the pandemic. so you sound like me that's where i was and so i started in the 90s and the um by the time the 2000s rolled around i had enough cigars in humidors and wine cool or wine refrigerators that were converted into humidors to last me till I'm like 90. And I smoked that. I smoked a lot. You know, I, every night it was, you know, two or three. And then, um, I cut down just on my own. I, I didn't have a health scare or anything. I cut down and then my son got old enough to smoke with me. So we would go out in the backyard and have a smoke like every night. So he went to college, and I got totally depressed about it. And I didn't have a cigar for like probably five or six years, except for I, I bought some for my daughter's wedding, and I had a couple that night. But you know, and I've still got most of the cigars, and they're they're just in a a tub now because we moved from South Bend down to Huntsville, Alabama, and I decided not to keep humidors because we're downsizing and I don't have room for it. But, uh, now, you know, I, I rarely smoke, but I still have a ton of cigars. So when he asked me to come over for a smoke, I always say yes. And, uh, I, 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 I enjoy it, but man, it was, it was a problem for a while. I, well, during the, like I said, during the pandemic, I, I, re, I fell in love with you with smoking. Uh, and you know, it's like, I, 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 the lack of socialization. So I, and I had this nice balcony. So I got to the balcony and I set up a little uh, station there and I have my co cocktails and my cigar and I set up my little phone and I would watch things and just kind of, you know, smoke outside, you know. And well, it's actually really kind of fun when it's like 46 degrees and you 
get a big jacket on and you're smoking a cigar. I mean, you know, it's it's just a it's an experience. Yeah, it's kind of a it's the closest I feel to being manly at the time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I put on that big jacket. I and, dig it. Know. I dig it. My my original reason to start smoking cigars is because Lutterman smoked cigars. So that you know, I always wanted to in the 80s but i kind of stuck stayed away from it because i quit smoking cigarettes when i was 18 and i didn't want to get back into it so in the 90s i finally caved and started smoking them and then it became a problem of course and uh and now it's, it's not a problem anymore i just have a few but yeah it's it's it, it's a uh, it's one of those things, uh, anything that you do like that can turn into a problem pretty quickly if you let it. And I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My eye doctor told me that if I don't stop smoking cigars, it's, I'm going to go blind. Wow. Because he said it was affecting so much of my health and my heart and everything. And, you know, I also had to quit drinking. And so uh, the doctors had told me basically... I never thought of myself as an alcoholic or a smokeaholic. I just thought of myself as a drunk and a very sophisticated person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, so I was able to quit cold turkey, mm -hmm. which, you know, I was able to prove to my family I wasn't really an alcoholic. You don't quit cold turkey when you're an alcoholic. No doubt. Right? Yeah. I go, but I was drunk. And yeah. I was a smokeaholic. You know, I smoked more than I should. But it, my doctors were telling me, they're like, you can't do this anymore. You spent your 30s drinking and smoking at a level that was basically a lifetime worth of, yeah. of substances. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. So I got to live out, which is kind of cool because now I feel better. Yeah. So I got to have this, I got to have an entire lifetime of a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now that you've already had that, you don't have to worry about doing it again. You can just be healthy now. Yeah. Oh, and I have the greatest excuse because when people go, oh, you're not drinking or you're not smoking, I go, oh, heart, heart disease. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, nobody wants you to actively kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you know, people want you to passively kill yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like people are like, oh, please drink with us. Let's slowly die together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. So as I was watching your comedy, and I watched a little bit more last night, and I, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I see you as somebody who portrays himself on stage as a regular guy who shows that there's no such thing as a regular guy. And I'm thinking of Walt Whitman. We, we contain multitudes. And, okay. and, and uh, that, that, that's what I get that... You, the, there's no such thing as a regular guy. We are all deeper than we show, and and we we've we've got deep thoughts. We we we've got hopes and dreams. We've got all that kind of stuff, and that seems to come out in your comedy. Do you do you recognize that, or do you do that on purpose, or so? I how am I getting this? <laughs> well, I, I I'm a storyteller. Uh -huh. I tell you know everything's a story. I do very little observational humor. I don't do like, what's the deal with airplane food? Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, a lot of people do observational or, or very, I don't do topical. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, if I talk about a movie, it's the little mermaid. It's something that's 30 years old. Yeah. So what I found was, is that being an English major, being an English, I was a college professor. Mm -hmm. I learned a long time ago when I was a 20 year old English student, and film student, um, everyone has a story. Every single person, and I, you know, I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I, I run the workshops and the classes at Flappers. Yeah, I saw that. Right. So, so I work with newbies all the time, mm -hmm. brand new topics, nice people, accountants, doctors, lawyers, actors. They just want to try comedy for the first time. And I'll ask them, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm really boring. I'm very, I'm just a white guy. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll say things like that. And I go, well, tell me about your last girlfriend. Oh, she was, uh, she turned out to be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's more interesting than just a white guy story. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So I get a lot of people that don't think of their lives as being interesting. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, if you're vulnerable, you're interesting. Right. 
And so when I talk about how I had all these jobs, it didn't really work out. Or when I talk about all these people I try to date age group wise, and it doesn't work out, there's a sense of vulnerability. I never present myself as being cool. Right, right. And in the process, people always tell me they feel like, wow, it's really cool what you did up there because I'm not trying to, I'm not a Marvel superhero. I'm mm -hmm. not Tony Stark. And most comedians are trying to be cool. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is Richard Pryor, if you go back and break down his bits, he was never trying to be cool. No. Yeah. When you, when you, you look at the, you know, you, then you get more of Jerry Seinfeld and, and, and Jim Gaffigan. They, they obviously are not traditionally cool. Mm. But what I realized is people just like it when I tell them what's going on in my life because I have a lot of contradictions. Yeah. I'm 5'7", 200 pounds, but I hang out with Hooters girls all day. Uh -huh. And I'm 40 years old, but I look 29, 30 to most people. Mm. So I have all these contradictions. So people are always kind of curious how I developed into this particular life. I used to be very involved in Christian education, and now I do this. Like, mm. how does one do all these things and, and still maintain who they are? And so that's what I realized is when I, when I just do that, when I talk about that in my standup, like I have a 26 year old roommate and one of the bits that I've been working on is we have nothing in common uh -huh. and, and it's causing, it's like, it's like watching a whole different person. It's like, it's almost like there's two worlds in one world. Yeah. She lives such a different life. She knows where concert tickets for free to like Weezer are or Green Day uh -huh. or like, I don't even know how to buy a ticket on Ticketmaster. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm so, so to get to do all those things and to be able to live that life, it, I'm very blessed that I live a, a, a much more interesting life than I should. Uh, and then I get double blessed because I get to share it and get paid for that on stage. Yeah. So, in thinking about what you could have done with your life, you know, in thinking about, you know, being a teacher, being a professor, and you gave it up to do stand up. Do you, what, what went into that decision? Was it, was it the fact that stand up was where you felt the most comfortable or what, what was it? So I was, so when I turned 18, I started coaching high school wrestling. Mm -hmm. So the plan was become a high school teacher head wrestling coach and eventually probably the athletic director and wrestling coach. Cause I've seen that mapped out, right? Like I like at 18, I saw the pathways, mm -hmm. but a funny thing happened on the way to a regular life, which is parents are awful. I mean, I, I, I have a general, really, I believe every parent is awful. They don't mean yeah. to be awful. Yeah. I mean, every parent is an open micer. Yes. Yes. Okay. Every parent. And it doesn't matter who you are. And even the cool parents are going to neglect so much in their parenting. And the bad parents are going to produce good kids. And there's no rhyme or reason to yeah. it. Okay. Sometimes you just lay a dud. You know, I my brother lives with my grandma. He's 38 years old. Uh -huh. Okay. He's a wonderful guy. Has his own problems. But my mom sometimes is like, what happened? I go, I don't know. Lots of people just don't make it the way we're supposed to make it. Right, right. So, so here's the thing. Parents aren't willing to admit that their kid is a dud. So trying to teach duds and then deal with their parents going that this kid's an A student. Your kid picks his nose at 16. Yeah. <laughs> your, your kid can't even do the in-class journal. All right. I got kids with two left feet whose parents think they should get a full scholarship right. To yeah. Iowa to wrestle. So the parents drove me out. Mm -hmm. I, not like actual pitchforks. Yeah. But I'm a common sense person. I go, I don't want to spend the next 20, 30 years battling with dads. Yeah. Who think their kid is the second coming of everything. Mm -hmm. So, so that got me out of that. And there's no money in the colleges because back in 2008, when I got the master's degree started, there was a, uh, 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 there were more college positions than there were colleges. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 
Uh, I would, I would, there's a multiverse where I'm making 180,000 right now, writing books as a professor. Yeah. But then after the crash, all those jobs got taken. Yeah. And they all got eliminated. And then now it's just adjunct part time, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, well, there's no future there. I have to get a PhD and I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I just decided, you know, I always wanted to do stand up. And so as I was becoming frustrated with teaching in 2015, I said, I'm going to go try this. Mm -hmm. So I did an open mic and I got laughs and uh, at Flappers. And uh, it was the audition mic. I didn't know what that meant, but it was the audition mic. And they booked me. Wow. Which they book everyone. Well, mostly everyone. But I didn't know that. And so it goes back to a real simple thing is I didn't I didn't know that everyone gets a shot to, you know, bring five friends to a show. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I was too stupid to ask questions. So I just called up a bunch of buddies and said, hey, I'm doing five minutes of stand up at Flappers. You want to come watch me do it? And they were like, sure. And they brought their girlfriends and then they rebooked me again. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so I was like, oh. I, I don't know what I did, but whatever I did, I'll do it again. And then I took a class because I was like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. And the class really helped me figure out the idea of what really clearly is set up punch. Mm. And, and this is, listen, everyone eventually who makes it figures this out without a class or with a class. Okay? But what the class does is it gets you to think in terms of what stand-up comedy should sort of look like. And how to develop something that works within your skills. Mm-hmm. So classes aren't for everyone because not everybody is academically minded. We at Flappers get a lot of students who happen to be uh, academically minded people who like being told, here's what you should be trying. And if you don't like it, there's something else you can try. Yeah. But they need structure. A lot of open micers, I was a structure guy. A lot of open micers want just five minutes to play. Mm-hmm. They don't want to structure at all. That wasn't me. And I, I didn't feel good when I did that. So what the class did is it got me to move faster. I got my dry bar special two years into comedy. Wow. But because of the pandemic, it took them a long time to, yeah. to post last November. Mm-hmm. But I built out 40 minutes of material that dry bar was willing to tape and pay me and put up online and do all that within two years. Now, my driver special is no more better or worse than anybody else's, which uh, I say for two years in, it's a miracle. Oh, yeah. Two years in. So, yeah. And then Laps on Fox put me up a year and a half in. Mm-hmm. So, so I was generating material that was TV ready at a very young point. Now, I also happened to be at the time, you know, 33 years old, 34. So 35-ish or whatever those two years were. Mm-hmm. So I'm writing material as an adult. Who already has a point of view. Yeah. So stand-up comedy, and I was always, I was the in sixth grade, I was voted, you know, funniest kid. I was voted most likely to be a sit-down comedian. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was a terrible athlete. And uh, but it was very funny, and everybody knew that. So by being the class clown, by being the one who's funny, by being the, I was kind of a Ted Lasso before Ted Lasso, being that kind of goopy funny, inspirational guy, stand-up came really mm-hmm. It just did. It doesn't mean I don't bomb half the time. I still bomb all the time, but I bomb less than I would have if I didn't embrace who I was and if I didn't have a little bit of coaching up front, say, this is what we... So now I don't need an open mic to see if a, work, if a fit works. Mm-hmm. I know what works for me. Mm-hmm. And as long as it falls within that, so you talked about the idea of the everyday guy, the schlub who isn't always just a schlub. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's on point. The, 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 the words that I use when I teach my advanced classes is there's a theme in my comedy, which is I win when I lose and I lose when I win. Uh. And the audience only wants that. So I do a bit where I dated a Miss Columbia, which I did. Mm-hmm. And then she dumped me for a foreign star, which she did. Mm-hmm. So the audience loves the fact the, the Seth Rogen lookalike got a hot girlfriend, but they, but thank God we live in a world where the universe went back to normal and she went with the guy she probably should have been with. Because <laughs> there is no world. Listen, if I walk in to a place and I got a really hot girl 
people are looking at like their watches as if like, am I in the right time place? And <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. Like if I walk in with women, it's like, oh, he must be the gay best friend. I walk in with one or two. It's kind of like, how did that guy do it? <laughs> so they, people like it that I'm winning, but people also don't want me to end up in a, in a George Clooney fantasy. Right. Right. So that's important to, to, to my comedy working. If yeah. My comedy was, I date hot girls and then I dumped them for more hot girls that people would, would despise me. Right. Right. Whether that's happening, it's just, nobody wants to live in. Nobody wants to think, oh, well, really you stop it. Yeah. Well, and you'd need yeah. to take that type of a character over the top and be a character of that character. Kind of like what Steve Martin did when, you know, well, did his thing. Guy. Yeah. 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 So, so that's really what got me into it was I always wanted to do it. I studied it as a kid. I used to watch all the Carlin specials, mm -hmm. all Damon Wayans specials. My grandma used to tape me all the HBO specials. And then I, I kind of watched it as a kid. I kind of figured out the rhythm a little bit on like voice inflection and stuff like that. So when I told jokes in class, I was getting laughs because I was kind of stealing voice inflection from the comedians. Mm hmm Right. And so I yeah. kind of knew little tricks that they didn't realize what were happening. Uh, you know, making faces like, mm -hmm. you know, like Jim Gaffigan face. Yeah. You just, <laughs> and they would laugh. And I just studied comedy. And then when I became a comedian, it was, okay, what, what, what's funny about me? Mm -hmm. What could be my unique, you know, mannerisms and stuff that I, I have. And now, you know, we're talking here. So, yeah. So, with your with your academic background in mind, how do you approach a bit then? You you know you kind of know what your voice is now. Well, you don't kind of yeah. know. You know what your voice is now. You know who you are on stage, and you get a premise. How do you take that from a premise to a bit now? So what I try to do is I think to myself, okay, whenever I am embarrassed in a situation, Whenever I am weirded out in a situation, whenever something feels really, really stupid, mm -hmm. I take that and I begin to form it into a bit. So I'll give you an example. I have a, I have a new bit that I'm working on right now in which MTV actually uh, messaged me on Facebook wanting to know if I wanted to be on the show Catfish. <laughs> so... I asked, well, what role? Because I'm thinking, if you want me to be the host, sure. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to be the guy who's catfishing women. Uh -huh. And I said, no. Okay. So I go, I have to talk about this on stage. This is hysterical. And it fits in with the win is MTV called. The mm. lot is that they wanted me to play a creeper. Mm -hmm. So this is going to fit. I'm going to get laughs off this. Yeah. And I, within the first time I did it, big laughs, big yeah. laughs. So now I got to think to myself, so I call my buddy up and I go, all right, what's the next show that they would book me on? And he goes, to catch a predator. So now the bit expands itself to, okay, so so we start from truth. Mm -hmm. The embarrassment of, they think I'm the creepiest guy. That's what they think. They think I'm this creepy guy behind the camera, right by the computer. But what if their only ideas of me were for like shows you know, that are just terrible shows. So to catch a predator, um, you know, they're like, Hey, we think you'd be great for seeing it pregnant. You know, I'm like, I don't want to get arrested. You know, <laughs> like all of those types of things. So then you start to go, what are the worst shows to ever be asked to be on? Mm. But then I can now expand our conversation into the realm of comedy, into the realm of exaggeration. Mm. It's not true for, but it feels true. And because I can say with such authenticity that MTV did reach out to me about Catfish, I now feel emotionally that I could joke, they might as well have called me about, and then I can list all the other terrible shows. <laughs> now I have a bit. Yeah. In the meantime, I have these other things that I'm working on. And, what, and what, as it develops, I begin the process of tagging it out once I've mastered the first two minutes of it. Mm. So, for instance, I have a bit where I talk about, I worked at the movie theater, okay? But I work with all lesbians. 
And, and, and I didn't know they were all lesbians. I asked one of them out. Mm-hmm. And, and the joke is she goes, I don't date boys. And I say, well, you're in luck because I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the joke ended. That just ended there. Yeah. Then over time, I expanded it into what I'm learning about the birds and the bees and the birds and the birds and the bees and the bees. Mm-hmm. So then what I do is, is I now take something once it's established because it never needs, it doesn't need to die as long as it feels authentic to you. Mm. Then what I'll do is I'll expand it out. So now that two minute bit becomes three and a half minutes. So anybody who's seen it before a year ago now goes, oh, I remember this. But then they don't know about the tags that I've added. Mm-hmm. So it allows for the experience of, of, of the audience that's familiar with me, that sees me at Flappers, that sees me at Jarrah's Comedy Club, that saw me at the Ice House. They would see the bit evolve mm. every single time they saw me. So it, everything starts as a kernel, and then I want to grow it out. Mm-hmm. So that was the way in which I approach writing is what's happening to me? How do I feel about it? Why? And then expand based on like, well, what would be the next progression mm-hmm. if this would go out of hand? Right. How do you decide if uh, if a joke makes it or not? How many times are you going to throw it out there before you pull it back and put it back in its case? Well, I think a lot of jokes, here's my, my, my take on that one is not every joke is ready for, not every comic is ready for the joke. So I have a closer that I did for a long time uh, where I use an Australian accent. Yeah. Okay. I, I was on a job and I use an Australian accent. I watched that one last night. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. When I first wrote that, it was seven years ago. It didn't make it into the act until about four years later. Uh-huh. And the reason is because I wasn't sophisticated or, or strong enough as a comic to structure that out so that there were setups and punchlines and the act outs were moving the story along. Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, it started as a dinner party where people I'd just tell them, oh, yeah, I used to use an Australian accent to give, you know, tips at work. Yeah. I'd go into the accent for five seconds. Everyone would laugh and move on. But with comedy, I was able to start expanding it. I started asking myself, all right, where, what were the worst places I visited? And who were the worst people to get in front of? And, yeah. you know, what was the most? Well, the same thing kind of goes with a joke where I go, if I think a joke is funny, I may say, uh, Okay, it's not clicking now, which means I may need to wait six months to to to, to determine if that's the bit that actually um, um, would work with a different version of me. Mm-hmm. Me, when I first started comedy, was not as confident as I am now. So there were bits that worked when I was shaky that wouldn't work now that I feel way more comfortable and confident on stage. I, I get that. And I, I, and I've been more of a hobbyist, but there's, there's some things that really worked when I first started out that I'm just not going to do anymore because it doesn't fit anymore. It's, you know, I've, I've changed my point of view and it just, even though it's funny and I could do it, it, it just doesn't work with the rest of the act anymore. Another thing too is, so when I lost weight, the fat jokes that I was doing no longer worked. Mm-hmm. So I now had to do fat jokes from the perspective of someone who feels more, the awkwardness of feeling more attractive. Yeah. Like that, that became, right? So I can't just do the fat jokes mm-hmm. the way I did. Um, and some jokes I could do it were stronger because I lost the weight. Mm-hmm. Some jokes became stronger. Um, but it's also... There's a difference between a five-minute bit or a five, sorry, a five-minute set and a 40-minute set. Mm. And in five minutes, things that I couldn't get away with because there's just only a limited amount of time to know me, I can put that into a longer set because I'm going to need that later in life. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is 45 minutes. I can't be choosy because there's only so much material that I know is going that has to add some success. Mm. So I'll give you an example. I did a bit about how I used to host pageants, bikini pageants and Hooters. Mm. And it, it sometimes did well, sometimes didn't. It, it never did bad, mm. but it never did. Sometimes it did great, but, but very rarely. Mm. 
But then when I'm doing 40, 45 minutes and I need to fill the time and I don't have a great audience for crowd work, you know, like you're like, oh, what do you do for a living? Nothing. Like, oh. uh, <laughs> I got I to gotta find a bid to fill the time a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So I can pull that in, but I can pull that in with a very different energy because you've now been introduced to me for 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now when I say to you, by the way, did you guys all know I used to host bikini pageants and hooters? Sir, please put your tongue back in your mouth. You yeah. I can now do that. Whereas in a five minute set, it's like, I don't believe you. Right, right. So the jokes that kind of work, work really well in a 45 minute set. Uh -huh. I have a bit right now that I'm working on about my relationship, my friendship with my grandma. That kind of does okay in five minutes. It does great in 10 and it kills in 15. Oh, yeah. Because the more you realize, because realize if, if I, this is something I talk comics all the time. If I talk about being friends with my grandma in a five minute bit, I become Norman Bates. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> if I talk about being friends with my grandma in a 10 minute bit, I become Albert Brooks in the movie Mother. Yeah. <laughs> but if I talk about hanging out with my grandma in a 15, 20 minute bit, I'm now Brad, uh, uh, Brad Pitt who hangs out with his grandma. Yeah. Yeah. It's now, wow, Paul's so cool. He spends time with his grandma. Mm -hmm. Totally different. Because when you only get it, because if I only have five minutes, that means I only have five minutes to introduce myself to the audience. Mm. Well, if I'm choosing to talk about my grandma for that five minutes, I'm creepy. Yeah. But if, but if it seems like it's something that's progressing to the point where you're like, this is a guy who sees a lot of movies. He's a guy who does stand up. He has road stories. He's a guy who's got a lot of jobs and he makes time for fam. Mm -hmm. I'm a more well-rounded person. Yeah. So that's what I realized too. A lot of comics make that mistake. They throw a bit out because they never have the opportunity to try it at the 15 minute mark. Mm. And so if you get to talk about something after 10 minutes of revealing yourself, it's going to come off way differently than if you only get five. Right. That's, yeah, that's another thing too. Yeah, and you know, I think that's the first time that that's you know, you're like my hundred and thirtieth or hundred and thirty fifth person to interview, and that's the first time that's come up that you, they have to know who you are to understand or really buy in to some of the stuff you say. So, right. yeah, that 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 really makes sense. That's uh, that, that's kind of a golden nugget for me. Uh, go, going back to the Australian bit, the the yeah. accent. And I, I watched that a couple times, and the beginning part of that, where you're first trying the accent, and the guy's like, "Okay, what part of Australia you're you from?" and it just keeps getting more uncomfortable, um, and yet you're leaning into it. So you, you, you feel I can tell you feel bad about lying uh, about going to medical school. Um, but you still took the twenty bucks instead of the five, and there was. There was something in there right, right at that moment is when it really sealed the joke. So you could have you could have done whatever you wanted after that, but that right there is what made the joke real. When when I admit that I'm lying mm -hmm. and that I don't like this mm -hmm. and I need to stop this, then I can lie as much as I want. Yeah, <laughs> it's because if you think about our culture and the way that we see morality. Mm -hmm. People go, well, I said, I'm sorry. Yeah. What more do you want me to do? Right. Okay. Well, imagine if we all took that as our ethos. Mm. We don't. I mean, we kind of do, but we really don't. I can then say, well, I'm sorry for doing this. And then you go, oh, well, now you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's a key. Now, here's what's funny. You talked about that as well. I got into an argument with a comedian one time about this where they were talking about, I'm not vulnerable enough because I don't talk about more, you know, I guess more sex stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That was their, that's, and I said, and you picked up on something very interesting. You picked up on the fact that I, I'm revealing to the audience that I can be a liar. Mm -hmm. that, that to get out of something, to make money, I will lie if I, if I feel that, that will help, all right? And I said, as someone who grew up, I told the comic this, as someone who grew up with an evangelical background, um, that is a sense of vulnerability for me mm -hmm. to admit that I lie to make money. 
Right. And so, so you're right. There is a certain sense of when some comics are getting away with, you know, mistreating their date, when comics joke about mistreating their boss, I, my thing is I'm not mistreating women. I'm not mistreating, which could all be fodder for comedy. Mm -hmm. I'm lying to people using a fake Australian accent to make money. Yeah. So it becomes a different type of vulnerability. Yeah. And you feel worse about that than some people feel about doing much worse things. And, yes. and that's, that's the vulnerability that came out. And I was just, I, it, it just hit me that, wow, this guy is just really showing him. He's showing everything that he's all about right here. And, you know, that, that part lasted maybe 25 seconds and this is not even the whole joke. It's, you know, it's right at the beginning. It's pretty much the setup. And yet right there, you know, I pulled you in and, and you know, I was pissed off at you for lying because I was thinking I, I was the guy that changed my five into a 20, but at the same time I'm thinking, yeah, I've done that shit too. So it was, it was really, it, I don't know why, but that was, you know, out of everything I watched that joke just really grabbed me. It's a pretty popular joke uh, when I do it for uh, uh, every Saturday I perform at um, a club in Santa Clarita. And I had a person come up to me one time and said, we brought our friend to have you do the, the Australian bit. You didn't do it. And I go, I, I got to do different stuff because people see me every week. Yeah. And they're like, no, but, but I said, tell you what, uh, here's my email. Tell me when you're going to come next time. I'll do it next time. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a joke that connects. It, it's just, it's such a weird story. Like nobody does this. It's very sitcom-y, but it's a hundred percent true. Mm. And, and, and so it, it wouldn't, but you know what? My background of watching so much TV and movies, I think inspired me to do it. Mm. Like, couldn't you see Joey from friends trying an accent to get, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. get a job. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you, you be, so, so, uh, then it's a very George Costanza thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought to myself, if I was in the Seinfeld pitch room, I would have pitched that. George uses an Australian accent uh -huh. to get a marketing job. And he has to walk around all day with this terrible Australian accent. Yeah. Which, because it's New York or in my case, Los Angeles, nobody would have known what a real Australian sounds like right well the way that the story in real life goes is we had an australian comic come to flappers she took some classes and i did the australian accent for her and she was like you don't sound australian at all <laughs> you sound like you're from new zealand with a hint of Downson." <laughs> so you know then which of course i have the other bit i do in the driver special about the comment is this guy have Down syndrome. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I would say that when I'm, when I'm vulnerable and when I'm, I'm, I'm doing, that's when the bit connects, that's when I can do it. And then I have to kind of let it run its course and take it away for a little bit mm. and then get excited about it again. Yeah. To work. Because I think, you know, a lot of times I see these poor comics who they got to do 45 minutes every night, you know, five nights a week, four nights a week. And, and they don't have time to write new stuff. They don't have time to play on stage. They're getting paid to kill. Mm -hmm. And so you, I, maybe not the audience, but I can see when they're finally kind of like, they hate telling this bit. Right. They're just getting annoyed. Yeah. The audience doesn't know that, but you as the comic knows that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of a, kind of a curse of being in comedy and watching other comics is you're, you're always overanalyzing everything and you, you it's hard for you to just sit back and laugh you know just just dig the jokes um so in teaching when and, and i know that a, a lot of these folks are just coming in because they want to get better at public speaking and they want to you know inject some fun into their lives and stuff like that but for you you how does teaching affect the way that you approach your own comedy well, it keeps me accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, when I started, we had one or two instructors at the school who's kind of stopped doing stand-up. Mm. So they left, but I made it a rule that you have to be actively getting up. 
and you need to be getting up and you need to be getting, I said, even if that's open mics as an instructor, cause you're not, you maybe just don't have time right now. But I said, if you got to stay, you got to be up. So if I hire an instructor, it's to make sure that, you know, that they're actively out there. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. It keeps me very motivated. The other thing is it reminds me of the mistakes I can make if I rely just on persona. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's funny. I, I feel like, so, are you familiar with Richard Jennings? Oh, yeah. I love love the platypus. I feel like a lot, of times, a lot of times you watch a, a 30-year-old comic coming in. They're really not telling jokes. They're just kind of doing a Richard Jenny impression. Mm-hmm. And so they got the jacket. You know, they're kind of up there. And they're kind of like, hey, you ever notice that when dogs get together, they sniff each other's butts? That's not really a joke. Yeah. That's just kind of, but they're doing it with this kind of club comic Richard Jenny Tahoe vibe. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you know, you can still get booked on that. Oh, yeah. You can still get laughs on some of it. It's not anything that anyone's talking about afterwards, but, and it doesn't really go anywhere. Nobody can make money off you. No one's asking for your sitcom. Mm-hmm. Right? No one's asking to make money off you, but you can get five minute guest sets here and there. You can, you know, still do a little thing of comedy, but it reminds me that I have to have clear punchlines. Mm-hmm. So when I'm teaching and I'm constant, so if I don't, that means I don't get up that night. So if I have a Monday night class, I don't get up. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in class till nine, nine thirty. Right. So, and I don't really want to go do a 10 o'clock mic right after that. So what I'll do is I'll go, okay, what can I get out of this with while teaching? And so the students are getting a better teacher because of that, because I'm invested in it in, a, in two ways. One, helping them. Two, helping myself. Mm. You know, like, Paul, how would you rework the bit? So I, I would give them the advice on what I would do for myself. And in the process, my comedy brain and mind keeps, you know, churning. Yeah. It's funny. You talk about the persona and it seems like, we're, we're getting into a lot of folks that are um, trying to be like the new Bilber or whatever. They're, 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 they're jumping into a persona that's not necessarily them. But the other thing is, is you're right. They're, they're working on the persona versus the writing. And it's funny, I had a, a Canadian comic, Glenn Foster, on a few episodes ago. And I told him, and I don't know if I remember if I said this in the interview or before the interview, that I've been listening to listening to JFL on the Sirius uh, more than like Raw Dog or any of the other stuff. And for some reason, I like it more, and I don't know why. And he said, "Well, we're not we're not nearly as famous, so we have to actually write better." <laughs> and I and, and that's really it because there's some really smart stuff coming from the JFL station and and it really makes sense that when you put the time into the as much time into the writing as the performance part and your voice and your persona it really shows. Well, the, you know one of the things about Bill Burr that I always use or Dave Attell or Dave Chappelle, uh, they're performing nine times out of ten. And killing in front of their fans. Yeah. And that's important for young comics to remember because you go watch Bill Burr, you go watch David Tell in front of a group that has no idea who they are because they're really, they're, they're famous, but they're not Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Right. They're not a complete household name. Right. Mm-hmm. So when they get in front of that group, they can bomb. Mm-hmm. They can bomb because the audience doesn't understand. Why are they talking about, you know, women that way? Yeah. Like, like they don't understand. Right. So, well, there's still an audience. So when, when young comics go, I saw Bill Burr Hill on his Netflix special with this joke about rape. Mm. Okay. But that was in front of 20,000 people that have watched everything he's ever done and know that he's not a creepy guy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a crucial thing. Jim Gaffigan, you know, you think about Jim Gaffigan, he gets big laughs on jokes that if if, if I just went to a, 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 an open mic and said, what's the deal with Hot Pockets? Mm-hmm. No one would laugh. No. But Jim Gaffigan, all of a sudden you watch this six foot one, two, 
you know, pale guy mm. talking about a food item that no one's ever thought about in their life. And that's the funniest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't always accept the, the, the cult of personality and fan base plays a huge part in the success of certain bits. Right. And your, your analogy of five minutes versus 10 minutes versus 40 minutes really plays into this because it's one year versus five years versus 20 years. And you've, and Carlin did the same thing. I mean, and, and, you know, he changed, you know, he changed his point of view three times in, in his career. And, you know, he went from the guy with the suit to the hippy dippy weatherman to the, uh, um, angry, angry old man. And, you know, it was a progression, but people yeah. went along with him because they, he was good at it. Well, yeah. And it also goes back to, you've never seen these guys do less than 30 minutes. Right now. Yeah. So they have luxury of warming themselves up to do what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, think about George Carlin, the way we see those comics as final products. Mm. It, yeah. Like, like, did you ever see George Carlin when he had a pad of paper at Hermosa Beach working on jokes? No. No. Most, only, only a few hundred people did. Yeah. Most people saw Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Taped. Yeah. With great visuals mm -hmm. and a clear picture and a sound mixer. Yeah. And, and, and they sweeten the laughs. I mean, I, I'm the first one to tell people with the Drebber special. Oh, oh I, I know that they heightened. Yeah. You know, they, they mix it. They make it so that it matches. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Hollywood happens when you watch something on television right. or streaming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's important for young, because comics get discouraged. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I'm never going to go like that. Oh, you could if I put you in a studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we can I, make I that can, happen. You know, yeah. We can. I mean, if you have a, if you're generally a funny comic, and you got a nice little seven minutes mm -hmm. and they put you on the laps on Fox show, you know, a few years ago, mm -hmm. you'd have a great team. Yeah. Even if the set was okay, the right. tape's going to be better than the set. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like CGI, but better. Laugh CGI. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, this is, so I've learned a lot today. Um, and I want to, I want to learn some more because I've got one for you. So I've got a new, a, a new, uh, segment called, is this anything? And I'm going to make a sounder for it one of these days, but for right now, it's just me saying, is this anything? And this is where we each bring, um, if, if you brought one, we each bring a premise, a bit, something that, uh, we're working on or we want to work on, or it didn't go as well as we thought. And we give each other some notes. Uh, so since you're the guest, if you have a bit, um, I'm going to let you decide if you want to go first or second and, uh, and then we'll just get started. So are we are we doing the joke as kind of like if I was on stage doing it for the first time kind of a thing? Yeah, I'm, and it's I, I normally just do a read through on mine. Um, I don't uh, I, I don't do a ton of act outs or anything like that. But yeah, just just kind of just kind of like if if uh, you were calling your friend and saying, "Hey, do you think this is anything?" Okay, so uh, recently I uh, just got uh, off a plane. I came from uh, from Phoenix to L.A., which is an hour flight mm -hmm. uh that happened to take 28 hours to make happen all right i uh at 5 p.m on sunday i'm on the plane the pilot goes attention everyone we're going to be taking off in 20 minutes go ahead and fasten your seatbelts, and don't worry we'll be in la in one hour so i fell asleep and woke up an hour later i looked at the guy next to me i go oh do we already land and he goes we haven't even taken off. Uh, I said, well, what happened? They said, well, it turns out there's a mechanical part and the, the plane doesn't work. So they take us all off the plane and they tell us we have to come back at 7 p.m. That's fine. Then we go back at 7. They say, oh, we have to come back at 8 a.m. And I went to the lady and I said, are there no more planes? Like, can we not? find a plane it's an airport uh -huh. like like don't you have a backup plane you're telling me 
40 years of flight and they don't keep a spare plane in one of the hangars? Did Jay Leno take all the space in all the hangars in the Western Hemisphere for his cars? What is the, why can we not fly an hour? An hour. I bet if you put us all in catapults, we can just fly to Los Angeles. We are one state away. We have to go. So they put me up in a hotel called the Sleepy Inn. <laughs> First off, that's ironic because no one has ever slept there. Okay? They might have been murdered. <laughs> might have been raped. Okay? They might have done a drug deal. But I promise you, no one ever slept at the Sleepy Inn. All right? But it took me two hours to register because the people in front of me all also were members from my plane who happened to be a girls' soccer team of 10-year-olds in which the coaches had to check them all into the computer, but they didn't know their last names. <laughs> so they go, uh, what's Carolyn? What's Carolyn's name? Carolyn what? I just call her Smith. Yeah, Carolyn Smith. And we got, we got Lupe, uh, Lupe Smith. And, oh, they're all cousins. They're all cousins. They're all sisters. All right? So finally, I get up there. I swear to you, there were bed bugs in the bed. There were bed the toilet was so low, it looked like a prison toilet. I felt like this is probably where they put Martha Stewart. Like in the same <laughs> Like just nice enough that she wouldn't cry, but really, really crappy. Uh, there was no shampoo, just a bar of soap, which, which made me, again, think I was in prison. <laughs> and the TV didn't work, and the lights didn't work, and I had to wake up six hours later. And none of the plugins worked, so I had to hope to God that my phone didn't die. Uh, but then I thought, actually, my bigger fear is that I'm going to die. So that was where that goes. But finally, I get to the the ho I get to the airport the next morning. I sit on the plane, and the pilot they actually said, "I can't believe that only half the people came back." I go, <laughs> "What did you think was going to happen? You put them in the sleep bed, but they're probably all murdered." <laughs> That's what I. That's what I'm planning on doing sometime this week. I like that, and uh, I'm thinking that um, you could uh, you could talk about the Sleepy Inn. Nobody has ever slept there unless it is their eternal sleep, and right. <laughs> my, that might sure. that might hit at home. I really like that, and it's a it's a good rant, and it's definitely. I've lived through the same thing, so I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't give you big enough vouchers yeah. when that happens. Right. To me, the big complaint is we were an hour flight away. Yeah. Yeah. Like you couldn't just find a plane. Like and that to me was actually the, the that's where I realized my plane is that you know the taxi place doesn't have anywhere. They have a taxi waiting. You know? Yeah. But and then I thought about the the what's in all these hangars. Uh -huh. And then I remembered at the Burbank Airport, Jay Leno owns like half. Right. So, so then I thought maybe Jay Leno just out. So, I'm, so I know that when I set this up, I want to set it up like at the Burbank. I went from Bur I flew out of Burbank where Jay Leno owns half of the hangar. I got uh -huh. to set it up with that to do the callback later. Right. So that's, you know, but that was what my head was going through, which is what, how could there not be any more planes? Right. Like, <laughs> and, and the other part I forgot to mention was that the plane technically moved from terminal 18a to 23a so technically we did move mm -hmm. so like there's that there's that kind of like no technically we did fly we flew on land yeah so you know i was like couldn't we just drive the plane that's, that's it right can't we just drive the plane yeah if we just drive the plane i mean no it's a sunday before halloween how many people are on the road yeah so yeah I, lo I love the, so that, why don't you have a, yeah, I love the, why don't you have a spare plane? It's, it's so obvious that, you know, cause I've been, and it's also entitled. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a certain white male entitlement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, 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 like when we buy TVs, what do you mean you ran out of the TVs? You yeah. don't have all that. You buy televisions here at Best Buy. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's the entitlement. There should yeah. just be more planes for when this happens. Yeah. I, I, but you're trying to get home, so you don't care anymore, mm -hmm. right? That, so that's the other part. I yeah. can do the observation part to be like, 
Because when you're in a rush and you just want to go home and you've been on the road for 12 hours already, like you, reason has left yes. the airport. Yeah. Okay. You don't yeah. care. Like if you got to put the, me on the pilot's back and he runs me out, yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then if you want to put the stewardess on my back, hey, we'll call it a threesome. Yeah. But yeah. I what love it. And, and you can really, you can really change the tone of that by just how angry you get during, during that whole rant. I mean, you could really, yeah. you could turn it up to the point where you're doing a Lewis Black up there and, or, or you could, or you could uh, be very, as a matter of fact about it too. It, well, you know, Lewis, uh, 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 Lewis Black is a great example of, of amping up anger. My favorite is actually John Panette. Yeah. Yeah. When John Panette is asking, how did you run out of food? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that type. And I met his manager once. So he's dead. But I met, I met the manager. Mm -hmm. And the manager said one time, he goes, you remind me of John. And I thought that was the most wonderful Oh, compliment. yeah. But I, at the time, I was 285, so I wasn't sure what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul, I got one here. And this this is actually inside of a larger bit. And the reason why I want to do it is because I feel like it is so obvious that it's been done before, um, but I I can't find it. You know, I do all the keyword searches and stuff like that, so I, I'm just going to throw it out there and see if you've heard it. Um, they call a second job a side hustle now. That's a big win for the capitalist marketing team. I mean, a second job sounds like you're poor, but a side hustle, well, it still sounds like you're poor, but you're having more fun on your second job. Okay, so to me, a hustle feels like a scam, right? You're hustling uh -huh. something. Mm -hmm. So, so if anything, the the way I would approach it is they call it a side hustle because it's really your job, your main job, hustling you into thinking you have to get more work instead of more pay. Oh. Uh -huh. So, so now that's the Carlin. That's the way Carlin would write. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Like the American dream is a nightmare. Yeah, you, know, you got to be asleep to believe in it. Right, that kind of stuff. So if you think about it in the terms of the second job, I would also want to have the details. What's the first job? What's the second? Because if your first job is, I'm a multi-million, you know, I, I'm the accountant. Yeah. For a multi-million-dollar chain of restaurants, but my second job is I have an OnlyFans. Yeah. That's going to be funnier. Yeah. See? So once you explain what your second hustle like, like like i work this first job now the side hustle needs to be an absolutely ridiculous thing that you're doing yeah right so so for instance when teachers this is a bit that i'd probably be doing if i was still teaching i have a master's degree i'm a college professor but my side hustle would be if i said like you know uber eats uh -huh. because you know you have to go to college to be able to bring people their mozzarella sticks yeah See, that's, so, that's so my side, that's my side hustle. That's what the whole joke is about is, is doing the food delivery. Right. So then you would want to mention what it is. You're doing food delivery, but that's yeah. not what your goal in life was. Right. So whatever Scott wanted to do in life, whatever you, like, did you get a college degree? No. Okay. So on some level you could be like, how did, how could a guy with no college degree end up working for Uber Eats? <laughs> See, so that's one way to do it. Now, what's your main job? Is it the podcasting? No, it's uh, it's IT related. I'm a consultant. Right. So I'm an IT consultant, which, by the way, the number one leading job for people with no college degree, right? Because yeah. you can learn on learn on your own. Yeah. But you still have to like deliver pizzas to people. Yeah. So so the idea is you 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 maybe you start it by explaining to people how we're going to have to use the C plus plus system to be able to integrate with the MSS uh, whatever. And then we're going to be able to do a synergize so that we can get the Wi-Fi across the whole thing. One second, I'll be right back. And then you get on the phone, you're like, okay, uh, mozzarella sticks to cherry pick lane. Thank you. <laughs> so so if you if you show the contrast, yeah, where it starts with, I'm a very successful person who just doesn't make enough money. Yeah, yeah. And then you have them inter you have the side hustle interrupted. Well, one minute, guys, I'm getting a text. It's from Grubhub. I need to deliver two extra cheesy pizzas. So you, you think of the dumbest thing you have to order. Now, the next way to write the bit is 
you're in this IT meeting and they're like, why do you have to do that? And you're like, oh, because uh, guys, you got the lowest bidder. Yeah. Like, congratulations. <laughs> this is what happens when you get the lowest bidder. You get a multitask. <laughs> you know, and so now you're working the bid as the consultant, but then, so you were the, but then like during the middle of the shift, you have to go deliver people their Pepsis. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I would be doing is showing the contract as to yeah. this very high level skilled labor you have to do. I like that. You have to do all of this, but it needs to be the worst foods. Yeah. Right. It needs to be like, I have to go pick up four boxes of frozen White Castle, uh, you know, to deliver to a couple of 17 year olds. You get to the door, you open it up, smoke everywhere. You know, it smells like they've been having sex for two weeks. Uh, and then you get back in your car, you go back to the work to do the IT stuff. And they go, Scott, you know, we didn't want to tell you this, but it sounds like it smells like you're pretty high right now. Yeah. <laughs> like it also smells like you've been with a 17 year old girl. Cause my daughter has that same perfume. Yeah. <laughs> Would you mind explaining why on the clock you smell like pot and, you know, Hannah Montana? Yeah. <laughs> but you, you know, that that's how I would build the bit out. It's mm. the emotional truth, which is this is how it feels like what I'm doing. It's not what you're literally doing. It's yeah. how you feel what you're doing. Yeah. That, that, that is really good feedback because it, it, I do have some tags in it that, and this was just a piece out of it. Cause I, I know that somebody has to have done the comparison of second job to side hustle. And I, I just, I can't find it. But, here, but here's the way you want to write it is don't write it from the observational point of view, write it from the personal point of view. Yeah. Because everyone has Tinder jokes, mm -hmm. but it's your Tinder joke. Yeah. It's your dating joke. It's your marriage joke. It's your kid's joke. It's your unique experience. Mm -hmm. So when you explain that you're going from IT to sending Doritos to people, mm -hmm. that's different than my side. So my side hustle is I write pol uh, political pieces. Mm. I don't talk about it. I'm not a political comedian in any way, mm. but I am a deep political thinker. Like mm. if we were to sit and talk about all the things of politics, I would have an opinion on everything. Yeah. It would be very thorough, but I don't want to do that as a comedian because yeah. right? I do that already. But my side hustle is I literally go from telling people how bad I am to explaining how I would break down the Ukraine Russian uh -huh. conflict. Uh -huh. And so my side hustle is different than yours. Yeah. I don't have any kind of payment side hustles. My side hustle still required me to have a master's degree. Yeah. In English uh -huh. or journalism. Right. So, so that's, that's different. So, so therefore you want to specify what the side hustle is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I am underpaid in four different professions for what I'm capable of doing. Right. Whereas you're, you're overpaid with the lack of education. And when you take it from that point of view, so here I am with my three degrees uh -huh. and here you are with your none, but you're the one who's the big IT consultant. Uh -huh. And I'm the guy who tells, you know, penis jokes. Yeah. <laughs> see, that's, that's where you see, that's, what's funny about that. Yeah. And so, so if I were you, I would make it very clear. They're like, I'm, I don't have a full education. I taught myself how to be a consultant for IT work, but it doesn't pay all the bills. Right. So I think that that's that, but once you're more specific, it becomes funnier. Mm -hmm. I do have, uh, since we're in, since we're in it, I do have one tag in it that, um, that, um, you know, I, I told a coworker that, um, that I'm doing this food delivery stuff. And he said, man, you must've fallen on some hard times, huh? And my answer to that is, uh, well, I've pretty much just fallen on times. This is, isn't this what everybody's going through? Right. I'm not doing the job that everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, oh, how did you get into, uh, how did you get into doing Uber Eats? Uh, I don't know. I went on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I looked up, I looked up part-time jobs and it was either this or just drive for Uber. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Right. So the more you exaggerate the experience, mm -hmm. the funnier it always be. Right. So it's, 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 I didn't fall in hard times. I'm literally living everyone's time. Yeah. <laughs> so when it becomes everyone, it's an exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah.
Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's, th I'm definitely going to go back to the drawing board on this one and try to try to put it together and get a little bit more outrageous with it and, and yet, yeah. and, and show up from a, and I didn't even think about talking about my real job. I didn't even. Nobody has. That's, yeah. that's the problem that every comic has is that they don't realize you're not a comic. Yeah. You're a person who does comedy. Yeah. So you bring you to the stage. Yeah. You listen, once you tell me you do IT consulting work, mm -hmm. I now see that you see the world from a method, uh, a very methodical way. Mm -hmm. You're a scientist. You know what I mean? You're, you're a mathematician. Right. You are a man of logic. So anything you do that's illogical now becomes funnier. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for that. That, you know, I learned a lot in, in, in this particular hour and, uh, I, I I'm really glad we connected. Oh, I'm, yeah, no, thank you for having me. If you want to bring me back anytime, please let me know. For sure. So how can people and find it, you? Uh, uh, the moom abides is uh, T H E M O O M A B I D E S. The moom abides uh. on Instagram, TikTok, everything. Okay, cool. In cool. fact, I think it's now my YouTube handle as well because YouTube's doing handles now. So. Yeah, they yeah uh, they they threw me one, so that was nice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just had two shorts that popped off at two thousand plus views over the last twenty four hours. So cool. That might be where I, I go. I, I get paid for Instagram Reels, but they're so funny with their algorithm. Yeah, one thing gets five thousand hits, the next gets four, and you're like. I, you know what? This is a. It's yeah. I have the same. It's problem. not worth it for two. It's not worth it for a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah, yeah. It's just not. Yeah, I've seen. Static. I've seen that. I. That's a whole other discussion. I'd like to get a roundtable people talking about why social media is ruining comedy, but that's that's something else. But uh, <laughs> but thank you. Oh, yeah, th thank you so much for being on the show. This has been fun. Oh well, thank you, and uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Excellent.